0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to talk about the theory of currencies. We're going to talk about how currencies have developed over time and how ideas about currencies have interfaced with other kinds of political theory. Right? So a little bit of political economy today, a little bit outside the box. To kind of kick us off, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a history of, of currency. We're eventually going to talk about the Romans a bit, but we're going to start for now in the period where the gold standard got going. And the gold standard got going in large part because the Spanish Empire in the Americas acquired an enormous amount of gold. And this enormous amount of gold made it possible to have a currency which was tied to gold and which could value the economy in terms of gold right? So you've got a relationship between the currency and the economy and a relationship between the currency and the quantity of gold, right? So the currency is trying to maintain both its value in terms of the quantity of gold and its value in terms of the economy, right? Now, the trouble is that the quantity of gold and the economy grow at different rates. So once all of this gold stops coming in from the new world, And we get to a more stable quantity of gold with gold mining at a relatively minimal level of growth or stable and predictable level of growth. Around that same time, we get industrialization and the rapid expansion of economies, right? So when the economy is growing very rapidly, but the quantity of gold is not growing very rapidly, Money finds itself in trouble because money is trying to maintain a stable relationship to both the size of the economy, which is growing rapidly, and to the quantity of gold, which is not growing rapidly. And this puts money under a lot of strain, right? Uh, think of it this way if you have 10 pairs and $10 and 10 gold bars, then it's all very easy, right? Well, one gold bar is worth a dollar and a dollar is worth a pair, right? But once you have 100 pairs, Now you are in trouble because if you maintain 10 gold bars and $10, then each dollar has got to account for 10 times the number of pairs which it previously accounted for. And this means that the dollar is, in terms of the economy, deflating. It's becoming more valuable, right? As the number of pairs increases, the amount of pairs that the dollar buys increases, right? So if you don't want that deflation, and the reason you don't want it is that if someone is holding on to dollars and they see that the number of pairs they can buy with dollars is increasing, that person isn't going to want to spend their dollar. They're going to want to wait until they can buy even more pairs with it, right? And if everybody waits, if nobody spends dollars because they anticipate they'll be able to buy more pairs in the future, then pairs don't get bought, and then the pair seller goes out of business, right? Right. The economy doesn't work properly if the currency doesn't move through the economy, right? So to solve this problem and get the currency to move through the economy, you need to print more currency so that people can continue to buy pairs at the same price point that they previously bought pairs. And people won't be sitting around expecting the value of the dollar to rise as the quantity of pairs rises, But if you increase the number of dollars, then you'll have more dollars relative to the quantity of gold. And if you're saying that each dollar is worth a gold bar, and you print $100 so that you can continue to exchange dollars at $1 per pair, you're then going to have the problem that each of those dollars will not be exchangeable for one gold bar. And you can look all over the world, it may be very difficult to get 100 gold bars, So you see the trouble with the gold standard? This is the fundamental issue. States have to acquire more gold to avoid having to devalue their currency relative to gold. And if they can't acquire that gold, they then have to devalue the currency. And if they devalue the currency, then the rich people who hold the currency are very upset because the rich people who hold the currency thought they had a currency that could buy 100 pairs and now all of a sudden it's back to only buying uh, one pair. They thought it could buy 10 pairs, but it's back to buying one pair, right? So you see the trouble? The economy grows rapidly in the industrial period. The quantity of gold does not, and the currency is stuck in the middle, right? And this means states are constantly trying to acquire more gold so that they can defend their currency's value, and they don't have to devalue their currency and upset their rich people who are holding that currency and expect that currency to maintain a steady pegging, right? Mm. This leads to more and more crises over time in the 19th century as states struggle, struggle, struggle to hold on to ever larger amounts of of quantity of gold that is just not increasing rapidly enough to keep up with the growth of the global economy, right? And this leads to more and more moments where people don't have enough gold and because they don't have enough gold – the currency is deflating, and people aren't spending it because they're expecting it to go up in value. And at that point, all you can do is acquire more gold, devalue the currency, and whatever you do, people are going to be upset with you. right? So it leads to these panics over and over and over again. In the States in the 1890s, there was a, a movement called the Free Silver Movement, proposing to add silver to the set of metals that you could use as a basis for the currency Because there was lots of silver in the United States and lots of silver mines in the United States, and that would allow you to increase the quantity of metal in a way that might enable you to keep up with the overall growth of the economy without having to continually shred the dollar's value or go out and acquire more gold, right? This is a big mess. You have a fundamental problem where you're tying a big giant thing like a growing economy to something that is relatively fixed like gold. It's not a big problem in a world where there's endless gold flowing in from the new world all the time and economic growth rates are relatively low. But once industrialization kicks off and growth rates go up, there's no way you can make this work. So eventually, we have to come off the gold standard, and we do. Right? And in the interwar period, there are a few different things that are tried. We kind of have a little bit of a messy period where we come off the gold standard to support wartime spending, then we try to go back on it again, and then we come off it again as we realize that it, it just isn't working, right? And the issue is when you're trying to do wartime spending, when you are trying to fund, say, World War I, there's just absolutely no way you can do that. With a fixed quantity of gold, you have to engage in so much expenditure so very quickly, you have to grow this wartime economy very, very rapidly that there's absolutely no way of maintaining a gold pegging. So the gold pegging has to be suspended during World War I. And then when they try to reintroduce it after the war, you, know, you again run into this very serious problem that reintroducing it is going to lead again to this deflationary bias, which you're then going to have to try to resolve. And this is make, it makes it very difficult for economies to grow. And in the 30s, it uh, combines with the depression to produce a really nasty scenario in which economies are trying to get off, uh, begin trying to get off of gold as a means of enabling their export shares to grow. And This leads to a collapse in capital mobility in the 30s because as governments end up dumping the gold standard so that they can devalue their currencies and boost their exports, everybody's doing this at the same time. Everybody's mad at everybody else for trying to get an advantage by changing the currency, right? Everybody looks to everybody else like a currency manipulator who's devaluing their currency to get an advantage in exports. And this means that Everybody's looking at everybody else with a lot of suspicion. And so the the attempt to return to the gold standard after the war never fully succeeds. And what you instead get is a bunch of different countries with their own currencies operating in what are comparatively kind of individual national economic bubbles. They're not engaged in anything like the same level of commerce they were engaged in when all of these different currencies were all pegged to gold and they all were treating each other as part of a a currency project where they were all trying to maintain stable a stable medium of exchange vis-a-vis one another vis-a-vis their economies and vis-a-vis gold all at the same time it was a very difficult dance to perform but when they were all performing it they could all trade a lot with each other with a lot of periods of uh, flux and periods where you have panics and things don't work out, but they, they could trade with each other larger volumes. After World War I, it's never possible to get that trade volume back. You can't get the same level of trust when it comes to the currency. It's too obvious to too many people that the gold standard doesn't work. Economists start openly arguing against it, You know, like John Maynard Keynes in the UK. And after World War II, We get what's called the Bretton Woods system, right? So this is a a new system which is supposed to enable a certain amount of trade and which is supposed to get a certain amount of price stability, but which is supposed to work better than gold and the way than the old gold standard. And the way it works is that only the US dollar will be tied to gold. All other currencies will peg themselves to the dollar. So individual countries won't have to hold quantities of gold. They'll just have to hold quantities of dollars instead, right? And that means that for this to work, the United States has to maintain a pegging to gold, but nobody else has to. Everyone else can move their currency around relative to the dollar,
2: Hmm. right? Now, in practice,
0: because you're trying to get a level of stable trade— Countries are going to try to keep themselves close together in terms of their dollar pegging, right? And in the case of the Western Europeans, that's what happens. There's an attempt to kind of keep all of the Western European currencies pegged to the dollar at a nice stable level. The issue with this is that as the United States, uh, for the United States to do this, the United States has got to constantly send dollars to Europe. Right, it has to constantly export dollars to Europe so that the Europeans can have these big dollar reserves, right? And the United States has got to maintain a uh, a budget. It, it, it's got to maintain its budget so that it doesn't run into deficit and need to pull dollars back from Europe over to itself, right? So the United States is forced to run relatively balanced budgets in the 50s and 60s, and this restricts the ability of the United States to take on big challenging projects, especially multiple concurrent big challenging projects. And in the 60s, we get the problem of the United States, A, trying to fund Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, B, trying to fund the war in Vietnam, and trying to do this all while maintaining a pegging to gold which the European countries can use to, uh, to maintain stability in their own economies. And what ends up happening in 1971 is the Nixon shock, where Richard Nixon says, we're no longer going to do Bretton Woods. The dollar is no longer going to be pegged to gold. It's going to float, right? So the consequence of this is now the Europeans don't know that the dollar is going to stay pegged to gold so they can't be sure that if they hold quantities of dollars that those quantities of dollars will remain steady in value right so this mediated system where the dollar provides a looser thing for the europeans to anchor to than gold uh, because the americans pull out of that the effectiveness of holding the dollar as a reserve currency is thrown into into some doubt now Many countries continue to hold dollars as reserve currency because the dollar is generally, especially more recently, managed in a way where its value is relatively stable. But the Europeans respond to this and go, we need to have our own system of maintaining stable mediums of exchange, which, are, which is not dependent on the United States, right? So they set up something called the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, ERM. And in ERM, there's a mutual pegging. So the European states all peg their currencies to each other rather than to the dollar, right? And this pegging is basically a kind of trust circle where if everybody sticks to it, then prices remain stable and trade in Europe can flow relatively easily. But if anybody gets out of alignment with everybody else, that threatens the stability of the whole thing. And of course, what happens is because it requires such an enormous level of coordination, the ERM immediately encounters problems. The French in the 80s uh, do not protect the value of their currency as much as the Germans and the Brits do, and that causes the franc to slide relative to the other currencies, throwing off the ERM, and Mitterrand is put under pressure. Either they've got to leave the ERM, or or the French have got to uh, – Mitterrand's the president at the time – either the French have to leave ERM, or the French have to defend their pegging, right? So – Mitterrand agrees to defend the pegging because he thinks the consequences of leaving the ERM would be too severe. A few years later, Britain ends up in a similar situation under John Major and just decides to leave the ERM on what's called Black Wednesday, right? A few years after that, because of the instability of the ERM, the Europeans set up the euro, the euro being a single currency managed out of the European Central Bank, Right? So at this point, you've got the dollar, you've got the euro, you have these currencies that are no longer tied to gold and are just kind of floating. They have floating exchange rates. They can move up and down, right? And because they're floating, the governments can do a lot more to play with their value to encourage particular kinds of economic results. They're no longer shackled by the need to maintain a pegging to gold. And that means they can engage in more experimental monetary policy, right? So in recent years, we've had something called quantitative easing where say, the Federal Reserve will buy large quantities of bonds or or quantities of debt from governments or corporations and inject those governments and firms with large amounts of cash, right? And what this does is it helps governments or firms that are facing uh, liquidity shortfalls uh, rapidly, rapidly accumulate a lot more money And that enables them to not only survive periods of difficulty, but to go out and invest and expend that money potentially, right? Now, sometimes they do that. Sometimes the government, when quantitative easing supplies it with a lot of money, goes and does big expensive stimulus. And we've seen this recently with the Biden stimulus plan, where uh, because the Federal Reserve is committed to keeping U.S. borrowing costs low the government is able to spend much, much more than it takes in in tax revenue without anticipating a run on the value of its bonds, right? Because the Federal Reserve is committed to buying those bonds if no one else will, right? Oftentimes, however, uh, when the Federal Reserve buys bonds, the money doesn't end up getting into the real economy, but instead gets thrown into speculative asset assets. It gets invested in places where... It doesn't really have anywhere to go, right? So, for instance, we've seen over the last 10 years at various points, big spikes in the value of commodities in the size of emerging markets, like the, famously the BRICS, Brazil, India, China, Russia, South Africa. We've seen spikes in the value of various cryptocurrencies. We've seen spikes in the value of the U.S. stock market, right? As this money that gets injected through quantitative easing ends up uh, in places that it can't really do a lot of useful work, and so it just ends up pushing up asset prices. However, when it does that, while those particular assets rise in value, the overall total economy does not see inflation because that, those prices are only rising in those specific areas And there's insulation between this financial system where there are these price spikes and asset um, bubbles and the real economy where these things are, are not generally happening because the ordinary people who buy ordinary goods and services are not usually ending up with all of this QE money and are therefore not usually in position to buy stuff to the point where there's runs on things and inflation. Yeah. Right. So that's a kind of a brief overview. Now, at every point in this... You have people who are very disturbed by changes because the thing about the gold standard is that the, the need to defend it provides, from the point of view of rich people, a powerful incentive to the state to not allow inflation to occur, right? Because if you, the only way that you can have inflation with a gold standard is to engage in devaluation of the currency, which is embarrassing and ugly. Otherwise, if you don't do that, gold will have a deflationary bias and will tend to cause the value of money to rise rather than to fall, right? That's why there's always been a chunk of people who like the gold standard because there's a chunk of people who have a lot of assets who don't want to see those assets fall in value and therefore like a monetary system that has a deflationary bias. They like this system wherein – the number of pairs increases much more rapidly than the quantity of gold because that means their money tends to become more valuable over time rather than less valuable, right? And there's been recently with the cryptocurrencies, a lot of people trying to set up something that works like this. They want currencies which have a deflationary bias built into them. So in the case with Bitcoin, you have a currency that's supposed to be mind up to a specific quantity of money. And once you reach that quantity of money, there it's supposed to be impossible to get more of it, right? And if it's impossible to get more of it, if there's a fixed amount of the currency, yet you're able to get more and more people to use the currency, then the value of the currency will increase as this currency is trying to cover a larger and larger amount of transactions and a larger and larger amount of stuff, right? So These cryptocurrencies, many of them are engineered to have a deflationary bias. The problem is that this doesn't work as a currency for regular people because regular people who don't have huge amounts of assets need there to be a functioning economy where money is moving around so that they can have jobs, right? If you don't need to make anything because everybody's sitting on money and nobody's spending it, then all of the people who make stuff, all of the people who provide the services that you use money to buy, those people don't have any work if, the, if everybody's waiting for the currency to rise in value, right? And this is the fundamental problem with the gold standard. It produced these deflationary spirals, which you could only get out of through a, a crisis, and therefore it produced endemic crises. And these endemic crises hit ordinary people very hard because in these deflationary spirals, unemployment would really take off and these people who were immiserated and made desperate by these deflationary spirals could cause political problems for states. And indeed, if you look at the history of the gold standard, it is percolated with anarchist movements, communist movements, fascist movements, various kinds of angry, angry, angry people who feel heavily marginalized and are looking to and that marginalization. And a lot of it comes from the kind of crisis which the gold standard produces. It's a crisis which drives up unemployment, drives up misery, creates large numbers of people with very little to lose, right? Now, when you have instead a, a, a crisis where you have a rotating se- series of asset bubbles all of which exist in the financial sphere, and each of which is prevented from reaching the real economy by intervention by the monetary authority, right? This means you do have a sequence of crises just as you would have during the gold standard. But this sequence of crises is much more insulated from the ordinary person because the ordinary person... uh, We'll, we'll see their un- unemployment combated relatively vigorously by a central government, which is going to use quantitative easing to do stimulus, right? The people who are going to get burned here are the people in, in the asset bubbles, the people who get their money in the asset bubbles. But when they get into trouble, the monetary authority will intervene to help them out, right? So because QE just keeps injecting money wherever there's a problem, And because it never gives ordinary people so much money for there to be a generalized inflation, but instead throws this money at rich people, lets rich people gamble that money for a while until it goes bust, and then throws more money at them so that they can continue playing with it, right? Because that's how it's essentially working now. You have a series of crises in these gamblers finding out that their gambling hasn't worked out which are unable to fundamentally destabilize the base of the economy, right? And in this way, what we're doing is we're creating a two-tier economic system where you have rich people who are engaged in a kind of speculative gambling game where they're repeatedly bailed out over and over and over again, and ordinary people who are kept in a kind of steady state situation Their wages don't go up very rapidly. The amount of stuff they can buy doesn't go up very rapidly. The value of the currency for them doesn't change very much. And they're in a kind of steady state situation where, for the most part, they're not able to buy more stuff. Their living standards don't increase. But also they don't get thrown into the kind of really desperate situation with the kind of regularity with which people were thrown into that desperate situation in the 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century. Right? And this means they are unlikely to go and join a revolution because they'll be kept in a level of stability that is enough to prevent them from getting those kinds of ideas. While at the same time, you've got rich people who are able to confidently play with money, invest it, speculate with it, without having to worry about going bust. And they're in a kind of, mer- in, their, in their view, meritocratic game where if they move their money around intelligently, then they'll make more of it and won't have to be bailed out as often.
3: Hmm.
0: So it's, it's similar to the way the Romans resolved their currency crisis. So if you talk to libertarians, the libertarians always make it out like, oh, the Roman Empire was torn apart by currency crises. And there was a major currency crisis in the Roman Empire in the third century during the 200s, right? Now, th- what people often don't tell you is that that currency crisis got resolved in the fourth century. In the 300s, what is referred to as the age of gold, right? And for good reason, because... What the Romans do is they introduce a currency called the solidus, which is made of gold, and a silver currency, which is uh, not made of gold and has much less stability. Now, the solidus is only paid to people in more lucrative roles, and it circulates mainly among the upper crust of the economy, right? And so, with the solidus, there's a lot of stability for. The wealthy Roman aristocrats are able to acquire it and hold it, right? Now, in the rest of the economy, the silver currencies are much less stable, but they're mainly being used by people who are consuming their incomes more or less as soon as they're receiving them. Ordinary people, poorer people, people who are not really in position to accumulate assets anyway, and therefore are not as disturbed by inflation in the value of their currency, Right. So the Roman case, by having this two-tier system, instead of having everybody on the same currency structure, different classes of people can get what they need out of the currency. The rich Roman wants stability out of the currency, and the poor Roman wants enough currency to buy bread, right? And by having two different currencies for these two different classes, you're able to get a system which works well enough for both sets of people that you don't have major economic instability. You don't get bread riots all the time, but also you don't have rich people upset over their currency inflating and their value of their assets falling, right? The Roman state in the fourth century is able to balance both of those imperatives. The currency is able to do both of those things for those two different groups of people, right? In a similar way, with quantitative easing, we are creating a two-tier economic structure where... You're paying for everything with the same currency, but the currency is working very differently for you depending on which parts of the economy you're involved with. If you're involved in the heavily financialized, heavily speculative part of the economy, the value of your assets is going up and down all the time. And so your net worth is going up and down all the time, and you don't have a lot of stability. But that stability doesn't matter to you because you have the opportunity to see enormous rises in the, in the size of your assets very quickly, right? Just through Asset inflation. And this sets up a game of of asset inflation that you get to play. And if you play it well, then you can make enormous sums of money very quickly. In the case of a few of our very richest billionaires uh, made just a ginormous amount of money off of coronavirus by riding the right speculative waves. Right. Similarly, uh, on the other hand, you've got. A poorer set of people who have a totally different relationship to the currency, for whom the currency is relatively stable in what it can buy, where the inflation rate, especially if you measure it by, say, core CPI, or or as uh, some of the Keynesians have been talking about more recently, super core CPI, which excludes the areas which are more speculative and which are more subject to these bubbles, uh, you'll see that the currency for those people is relatively straightforward and, and stable right? So it's kind of a reverse of the Roman situation, where the Roman aristocrat wanted a highly, highly stable situation. Indeed, one where, if anything, the value of the currency would deflate rapidly, right? Would, would deflate over time. Uh, well, I suppose that wouldn't be stable. The, the solidus, if anything, it deflates. It doesn't move very quickly, but if anything, it deflates, right? And the ordinary Roman has a currency which rapidly inflates, but which the ordinary Roman spends as soon as they receive it, and so therefore isn't too bothered by that inflation. Uh, Today, we kind of have an opposite situation where there's immense asset inflation and deflation all the time for rich people, with ordinary people in a kind of secular stagnation where there's very little change in living standards, very little movement. Real wages don't move very quickly productivity doesn't move very quickly, right? And that's kind of how we've squared the circle of having very different demands from different classes for what currency should do, right? And I think if if we look at the history of political theory, what we see is that there are lots of people who want currency to do different things, who are able to point out that the currency isn't currently doing those things, and who therefore predict some kind of doom for this system. But as we saw with the Roman Empire in the 4th century, and more recently here, there are ways of structuring a currency such that it treats different people in very different ways. And so even though you have one system, and a system which in large part is not tied to gold, that system is able to meet the demands of these different classes in ways which leave them all if not satisfied, then at least not interested in rebellion.
2: Anyway, that's where I want to open up. Mm. What do you think, Edmund? Yeah, I I think that a couple of interesting um,
1: threads to to draw out uh, through the episode there, and I think that Perhaps one thread that might be worth picking up a bit more is the relationship between currency and, and trade, particularly international trade. Because the point is often made that, um, the um, besides the um, or perhaps as a part of the uh, deflationary bias of the gold standard, you've also got current account imbalances because. Uh, when you've got a gold standard as the economy grows, you can be sure that the uh demand for gold will be outstripping the supply of gold, so you'll have to overvalue the um uh, well o- overvalue the currency as a result to maintain the currency uh, the currencys pegging to gold, and that overvaluation of the currency will lead to more imports and Less money in the economy, and therefore this, in, and therefore this deflationary um, bias. Um, but there's also f- f- from the uh, from the perspective of states that are trying to export more. This is um, a bit of a problem because one of the reasons why Nixon took the dollar
2: off gold in '71 was because. Um, prices for agricultural products were rising and therefore the competitiveness of American agriculture
1: was, uh, w- was threatened by the fact that, uh, that pegging the dollar to gold meant that you couldn't, you couldn't devalue gold um, in order to, in, in order to boost exports. And so you couldn't
0: devalue the currency.
1: Sorry. Yes, you couldn't devalue the currency. Um, and so I, I, and I guess, I mean, of course, the issue, though, is with, with, with this view that of current account imbalances flowing from the gold standard, is that you also get current account imbalances today. I, I'm wondering if this is in some way connected to um, having the dollar as the international, uh, as a kind of not, not quite a world currency, but as the most powerful uh, international uh, currency. And the main currency of international uh, finance. Um, I mean, one, one example of this, for instance, is that um, you know, we've, you've talked about the, uh, the uh, dollar and the euro, but there's also the Chinese renminbi, which China has been trying to internationalize. And th- at the same time, China, as it has grown its economy, has accumulated what? Some economists call a savings glut, which um, is then exported through buying up U.S. treasuries, Um, and the fact, and this kind of increases the dependence on uh, U.S. dollar and dollar-denominated financial assets. And so there's a kind of uh, self-reinforcing cycle of uh, of of dollar dominance, and this goes hand in hand with the fact that China is doing this partly because it's an exporting. Um, country which is accumulating these savings and then flushing them out through buying up uh, dollar-denominated um, financial products and U.S. Treasuries, and so I I, I wonder whether there's an, there's an extent to which these current account imbalances can be escaped from. Is there is there a scenario in which a world without uh, an equivalent of uh, the gold standard, or the equivalent of an international currency, uh, might be less unbalanced, or it is the only answer
2: out of this to move towards more monetary integration rather than less.: Well, I, I think that
0: I think that the reserve currency thing is really about states that don't have a lot of credibility in their ability to maintain price stability. Uh, yeah. states that are not believed to be very good at that they have to hold baskets of reserve currencies and those reserve currencies are currencies that are considered trustworthy right yeah so you kind of set up a makeshift version of a gold standard yeah with yeah. these baskets of reserve currencies and the dollar is traditionally preeminent but it is a basket and states will often hold a few different currencies in that basket uh, and the purpose of it is if you have a population which doesn't trust your ability to run your own currency, through a pegging to some other more trustworthy currency or asset, you can allay their fears that you're going to mismanage the currency, right? But you only really need to do this if you have a trust problem. Mm. If you don't have a trust problem, then you don't really need your currency pegged to anything else provided that you continue to manage the currency in such a way that it doesn't radically inflate or deflate, you're going to be okay. And this is what the United States was able to figure out. The United States was able to go, wait a minute, I I don't have to have a pegging to gold if I manage my currency effectively. And so in the 70s, initially, it looked like a quite Difficult thing. When the United States came off of Bretton Woods and then endured the oil shocks of 73 and 79, there was a lot of inflation. And it didn't look like the United States was very capable of running the currency in a way which would maintain price stability. But over the course of the 80s and 90s, the United States was able to get its inflation down to a manageable level and to do this without reintroducing a gold standard and without pegging the dollar to any external currency, right? So for large states that have a credible ability to manage currency established over time, I don't think that holding a lot of reserve currency is especially important. Mm. It's mainly an issue for states which have a credibility problem. And so I've always thought that the reserve currency thing was less of a real issue than it's often made out to be. Mm. Because- if you're the European Union, you aren't holding a bunch of dollars to defend the the euro. Indeed, you know that was what Bretton Woods was. It was holding a bunch of dollars to defend the euro. At this point, if you are the European Union, you are mainly getting by on the strength of the euro, right? So what we're really seeing here is, is the powerful states that have established an ability to run their own currencies, fighting over uh, what? poorer states will choose to use in their reserve baskets. And the reason to do this is because you think that having those poorer states demand your currency helps you uh, manage to finance your own spending, your own expenditure, right? Hmm. But in a world with quantitative easing, you don't necessarily need foreign states to be demanding your currency to be able to finance expenditure. Hmm. With QE, you can, you can print the money, and as long as you don't generate inflation with it, um, you're, you're not nearly as dependent on foreign states financing your expenditure. So if you look at the world after 2008, what we saw is that there were many states, which are not the United States, that were given a lot of room to potentially... Do very expensive stimulus and to do quantitative easing, right? It wasn't just the Federal Reserve which engaged in QE, but the European Central Bank did it as well. And Japan did it. Hmm. And these states are, you know, the European Union and Japan are not the reserve currency, but they still had quite a bit of policy flexibility because their central banks are considered trustworthy. And there was no
2: run on the euro or run on the yen.
0: Yeah, yeah. Inflation in both cases stayed low. So I think that the reserve currency thing, it's, it's more of an issue when you're talking about having influence in states that are more fragile, that don't have as much established credibility. And I think people make a lot out of it in part because there's a lot of, of worrying about what happens if states start holding uh, euros or uh, renminbi instead of dollars because that might indicate some kind of decline in american prestige or power but i don't think it makes a lot of difference economically to the united states
3: okay yeah yeah
0: i think for instance in in the case of the european union if the european union wanted to pursue the kind of stimulus policies which the United States pursues and it was organized in such a way to facilitate that. I think it it could do that economically. I don't think that the EU would be constrained by the fact that the euro is not the reserve currency if the European Central Bank was ready and willing to make the kinds of interventions at scale which the Federal Reserve makes. Ready, willing and able. But it's it's not ready, willing and able because of divisions within the European Union over what form monetary
2: policy should take.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I guess, for instance, in, in 2015, when uh, China sold a bunch of its US treasuries, um, the Federal Reserve was able to just adjust interest rates accordingly to keep China and therefore the world economy okay. Um, and yeah, perhaps central bank independence is one reason not to Worry so much about, um, about that kind of thing. But or or at
0: at minimum, central banks that are considered trustworthy. However, it is that you obtain that trust. If people think that the central bank can manage the currency in such a way that it won't lead to inflation, then these disturbances are not very important. But in a dollar world,
1: it's the Federal Reserve that is that that is that key bank um, that provides that trustworthiness.
0: Well, for states that are holding large quantities of reserve currency, but states which can do quantitative easing of their very own are able to print a lot of money on their own without having to be working in the dollar.
1: But don't you don't have the risk of capital flight um, if you print too much money.
0: Well, if you print so much money that you lead to inflation... Yeah, but I, as we've I, I, seen yeah, with the yen and with the euro, we didn't get a bunch of inflation after 2008. Right,
1: partly because QE, unlike stimulus, is not putting money uh, in, 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 into the pockets of consumers. It's just clogging up ba- bank balance sheets for the rich.
0: Well, to, to a point, it can end up eventually doing that if it's used by states to finance fiscal stimulus and if that physical stimulus is targeted in such a way that it reaches consumers. Right, But these yeah, are a lot of ifs. Yeah right yeah and so because this qe has not been used in such a way that it generates large amounts of inflation in japan or in europe i think there's relative trust in the european union and in japan and in their ability to maintain price stability the, the- and i think that's what is really important rather than which reserve currencies you have in your basket of reserve currencies
1: and i guess even with Monetary financing with the central bank uh, financing uh, government's deficit spending in, in 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 the coronavirus age that hasn't produced a whole lot of uh, inflation at all as a result. Um, so that th- there is some uh, optimism there. I guess the question is,
0: uh, at d- least not as yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, the question is, could monetary financing cons- continue at scale outside of? Crisis times. Um, that's one question that's not yet answered.
0: Well, uh, and this is the kind of experiment we're in now. We're in an experiment where can we use quantitative easing to produce something like a two-tier financial system? Okay. Where, where, rich people are able to see the value of their assets increase. Yeah. And everyone else has stability. Has. Uh, more or less no real change in the real value of their wages or in the prices of of the stuff they consume, where these things are held relatively stable through low inflation rates.
1: Kind of like the solidus and the denarii in the late Roman Empire, are you suggesting? Right,
0: but but working through a kind of opposite inflation mechanic, because, of course, the denarii was heavily, heavily inflating.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: Right? But here the aim is to have relative stability for poorer people in, in the value of the stuff that they mainly look at and, and buy, and to have a lot more fun and games with the value of the assets of rich people. Right, But the rich people are willing to tolerate the fun and games because they are largely assured that they can only win. Mm. Right, It's like a casino where you can only win, and if you lose, you'll get some help. Mm. So it's okay to have a lot of fluctuation because when these bubbles burst, there will be help. Right? Yeah, yeah. So when you're winning, you win, and when you're losing, you get help. And therefore, instability in asset values is not a huge problem, right? But you get, when you, you read about When you read economic material that is mainly catering to the interests of rich people, a lot of discussion of these asset bubbles and uh, whether they're okay or not okay. But for the most part, none of this affects somebody who doesn't have a large amount of assets and is consuming most of their paycheck as they receive it.
1: Of course, the way in which this does affect working people is through capital flight, because that that can
0: cause economies to, uh, fall apart. And that was all well, right. If you yeah. get capital flight, but that yeah. mainly happens in poorer States, which yeah. don't have credibility in the way that they manage their currencies. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Th- though right. you do have because, capital, yeah.
0: You could because have capital the flight the within the States. In the, yeah. Well, you can have some movement of, of jobs within, uh, say the European union or within the United States. You can have that, uh, because you don't have runs on the
2: dollar or the euro or the yen. Yeah. You have a certain level of stability there.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Whereas if you're working in a currency in a poorer state that doesn't have the same level of established credibility, you have to worry a lot more that if you were to do, say, quantitative easing, there might be a run on the currency. And I think if individual European countries were left to have to make these decisions on their own, they would risk runs on the currency. Mm. It's because the European Central Bank is saying that the whole of Europe is behind the currency, that individual states can get into trouble without uh, it, things really, really unraveling rapidly. And it's one of the things which limited the degree to which you could get runs on Italian bonds, Spanish bonds. There is an assumption on the part of investors, which the European Union has to defend, that the whole of the EU will back any particular EU member state that gets into serious financial trouble. Right, And that's why the EU has, out of frustration, created these physical rules to straightjacket the member states to reduce the amount of trouble that those member states can expose the black to.
3: Mm.
1: And if, if uh, currencies were still pegged to gold, how would that affect the prospects of runs on the currency?
0: Well, if the currencies were still pegged to gold, then people would be chasing after gold all over the world, trying to make sure they have enough gold to defend their peggings. And all of this time and energy would be wasted on trying to accumulate piles of of metal. Yeah, yeah. Which is what what happened. And because you can never accumulate enough metal to finance an economy which grows at the kind of scale at which our economy grows, you just can't do it. And it's it's
1: funny how... uh america though the, the intention of dropping uh, the, uh, the pegging of dollar to gold in in, uh, in august 71 was um was to free america up from some of its international commitments uh, so that america didn't have to um provide gold to uh countries including including um, britain which wanted gold um but but after the financial crisis, uh, America opened up these kind of uh, dollar swap lines. And after the coronavirus crisis, similarly with uh, dollar repurchase agreements to facilitate states with dollar shortages. Um, and that's a kind of similar function to the role that America played with the uh, w- with gold standard 3.0 after the, uh, in the post war era. Um, I guess one reason why yeah, the. For end-
0: states which still get into trouble, the reserve currency system is there to help them maintain stability. Yeah. When their own mechanisms fail to do that.
2: Yes. Yes. Which is kind of equivalent to gold.
0: But different because yes. the dollar can be rapidly generated out of nothing, whereas gold cannot be. You have to mine it.
1: Yes, but other countries don't have control over how many dollars there are. They have to rely on the Federal Reserve Board for that, like China in 2015.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, and this gives the United States leverage over those particular states, yes. Uh, but I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference to the domestic American economy. I think it's more of a, of a tool for power projection.
1: It, it's, it's funny that because some people argue that this kind of restrains America in some way because America has to provide these dollars um, in order to in order to maintain kind of the, the, the health of the global financial system.
0: Well, insofar as America cares about that. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that because... I think America uh, does care about that. <laughs> well, yes. Yes. We're really talking about also a situation in which particular states become dependent on the United States being willing to supply them with dollars. And yes. if they can't, find the, can't get the United States to supply them with dollars, then they have to get some other currency to back themselves up. So it, really, the reserve currency thing matters mainly when we're dealing with states which are not strong enough to have their own currency, that. That can stand on its own two feet and are having to rely on other states' currencies to inspire confidence in their own currency, and who therefore get into situations where they need foreign currencies to reestablish confidence. And that gives the people who control those currencies that they need a certain leverage over their policy, right? If you need dollars to restore stability, then The United States, which can give you the dollars, has a certain leverage, Mm. right? And so if some other state were the state that you were turning to in that situation, that state would have a certain amount of leverage over you in that kind of crisis situation. But I don't think that that makes as much of a difference to the American domestic economy as people often assume. Because of the ability of the central bank to do QE, and prevent that QE from leaking into the real economy enough to drive up overall inflation rates.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, right, right. QE and the Federal Reserve Board just keeping interest rates low, which is what it had to do in the twenty fifteen to uh, sixteen um, China crisis. Um,
0: well, and which it was also happy to do because there was still plenty of room to grow the American economy. Right, right. Th- f- and and U.S. inflation was still very low throughout the period. Right, right. Though
1: the uh, part of the chaos was around uncertainty for good, around the Federal Reserve Board being prepared to raise interest rates, but that but then having to not raise interest rates in order to in order to adjust for um, what was happening in China. Um,
0: yeah. So I think this was largely to the United States' benefit, given that there was still a good deal of room in the american economy to grow during the period is evidenced by the fact that that didn't generate a lot of inflation during those years
1: oh no no yeah
0: the low interest rates of the late 10s did not generate large amounts of inflation in the united states and this is the issue so if you're if you're saying that not you but if, if somebody's saying that there's a big problem coming here for the united states that problem would have to take the form of eventually the united states trying to prop its bubbles along and actually producing a real inflation spike in trying to do that. And what's been interesting is that so far, when the United States props up bubbles in itself or in other states, which get into trouble and which need dollars, when the United States does these dollar injections, it isn't producing inflation in the value of the dollar.
3: Hmm.
2: And as long as it doesn't produce large amounts of inflation in the value of the dollar, it doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the real American economy. Mm. And that's why I'm kind of trying to suggest we have a
0: two-tier thing going on here. That there's a kind of real American economy that ordinary people are in, where prices are pretty stable, despite what you hear. Despite conspiracy theories about the inflation
2: rate, CPI is relatively stable.
0: And on the other hand, a set of countries and wealthy people who are operating in a much more boom and bust space with asset bubbles that explode and and move around.
2: Hmm. Right.
0: So I think that 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 is creating a situation which is vaguely reminiscent of that fourth century situation in Rome, where persistent currency issues and persistent economic issues give rise to a system which is somewhat bifurcated. Right. Mm. And oftentimes we're listening to a discussion which is about the interests of people who are exposed to those asset bubbles which doesn't really have all that much to do with what's going on for the regular person. And you've got a kind of mediating group, a set of Americans who, have, um, who are wealthy enough to have retirement savings and who therefore are to some degree exposed to these asset bubbles through the stock market and who get heavily, uh, try, to, try to understand all of this and to get interested in it because they do recognize themselves as being to some degree exposed to these asset bubbles. Right? And these people often get caught up in gold standard discourses or libertarian discourses about coming inflation because they're mainly worried about falls in the value of the dollar, which would cause their retirement savings to become less valuable. And they're not really in a position to evaluate. Uh, to, to understand the economy much beyond that. They know that if we were on something like the gold standard, then their assets would have more stable value and they wouldn't have to worry about their retirement savings evaporating because of public policy, right? These are people who are not in position, or at least they don't think of themselves as in position, to ride the asset bubble waves, who view themselves as more exposed to the possible loss of their savings than they are uh, able to enjoy Asset bubbles, And to a large degree, this is true because they don't have access to high-frequency trading. They don't have access to all of the things which very, very wealthy people have access to. Their exposure to the market is a kind of passive exposure. And so because of this, they're much more worried about these asset bubbles popping. Whereas the really rich people, the truly rich people, don't have to be concerned about that in the same way. They have enough money to be able to rely on bailouts, more likely, and they also have an immense amount of ability to very rapidly move their money out of a sector that is troubling and over to some other place. Right? There's a difference in capital mobility between the people at the very top of this system who are happy to ride asset bubbles because they can move off them very fast And people who are further down the chain, who have their money locked up in IRAs and and other kinds of retirement accounts, who can't move their money out of the stock market as quickly, and who are therefore more worried about the stock market developing into
2: an asset bubble.
3: Mm.
0: So I think a lot of the discussion about money is a discussion that is kind of this professional strata and it's worrying about its retirement account. And it's a kind of different discussion from the discussion we would have if we were actually in a room with oligarchs who can move their money rapidly. And it's a different discussion from the one we would have if we were talking to people who don't even engage with this system really because they just spend their money as it comes in.
1: Yeah, and I guess yeah. There, there are two aspects of the politics of this. One is the, one is the class politics where uh, the rich are very worried about uh, inflation and overplay the risks of inflation. Of, uh, german hyperinflation in 1920 uh reoccurring magically at various points in 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 history even when it's very unlikely to uh uh, to occur and and citing the 70s as uh, as justification for this uh, the the
0: smart financiers don't worry about that the really smart rich people are not concerned about hyperinflation right Uh, these are these are people who are who are really enjoying the ability to move their money around rapidly around the world in and out of different sectors who have it set up so that if there's a very rapid change in the value of their assets, they would automatically at a certain price point get out anyway. Right? Right, right. Yeah. These are people who who have high frequency trading, who have abilities to move money very quickly. Then you've got a set of people who are less able to enjoy capital mobility than this.
3: Mm. People
0: whose assets are more fixed, either because they're locked up in retirement accounts or because they're small business owners who, who are locked up in the, in particular properties, or people who whose wealth is tied up in, in the value of, of of homes. right? So if you have money that is tied up in the value of specific things that are difficult to move, then These asset bubbles are more worrying because if they explode on you, if you're in one and it explodes on you, you aren't able to get out fast, right? Mm. And this is the value of of heavily financialized assets for very, very rich people because since those assets are not physical, they're not tied to something that they would struggle to get out of in a pinch, right? Because they've become financialized, you can easily move in or out of them very quickly. Mm. Right. Whereas people in in the next step down, the kind of small businessman or the uh, professional with a retirement account, these people do not have the same access to capital mobility and their material interests are therefore very different from these rich oligarchs and also very different from the people who don't have assets, who just spend their money as it comes in.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right, I, they're yeah. more worried about these asset bubbles because they might be affected by them. But the people at the top of the chain are able to move money around in such a way that their exposure to these bubbles is not serious, generally.
1: Yeah, and then for uh, and, and then for ordinary working people, there's the you know a greater risk than I- inflation is deflation and the unemployment crisis which flow from that. Um,
0: well, and, and that deflation and unemployment is managed by interventions through QE, right? So, for instance, during coronavirus in the United States, we had the pay, uh, paycheck protection program to intervene to prevent mass unemployment. We had an extension of unemployment benefits. You mean stimulus and a federal not,
1: supplement? You mean stimulus, not QE?
0: Oh, excuse. Well, QE often often funding stimulus. Oh yes, right? with monetary financing. So we, yeah, yeah. Right. So we we have all of these programs to prevent the kind of real destitution, real sharp, sharp immiseration, which a century ago would have potentially contributed to revolutions or people on the street. Um, These kinds of, of really, really bad situations will get prevented by state intervention. But the state is not ensuring that there is steady growth in incomes of the kind which occurred in, say, the 50s and 60s right? We don't have steady wage increases or anything like that. All that the state does is make interventions to counteract the worst effects of unemployment, Hmm. right? So you get these emergency interventions, but they are not designed to produce a kind of generalized
2: uplift in worker living standards.
0: They're about preventing catastrophes that could result in real trouble for the state politically or for the elected government electorally.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, so a lot of this, and a lot of that depends on both maintaining the confidence of, of mobile capital and maintaining the confidence of, um, let's smile, no mobile, but to some extent mobile labor. Um
0: Right. And so you see how it gets squared. You have to to make sure if you're the American state that your laborers don't get so disgruntled and so immiserated that they cause trouble. At the same time, you have to make sure that capital is able to enjoy playing games and moving money around in a way which, which leads to winning for them. They have to be able to make money off moving money around and playing the game. Yeah. Right? In the 70s with high inflation, you're just playing to avoid losing or to minimize your losses to inflation. So as long as you keep the, ba- the inflation rate low enough, then all of these games you play with these asset bubbles can be a great big ride for rich people because they can get on and off and they can expose different chunks of their assets to different things at different points and they can diversify their assets all over the world and have some of it in potentially speculative bubbles and others in things which they take to be more stable. right? yeah whereas if you are if you're someone with houses or with a shop or with a pension yeah or with retirement accounts, you don't have that kind of ability to move around so your whole relationship to this thing is different
1: okay so 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 it's both uh so so there's that role of the kind of the the the, the middling sort the professionals and managers and pensioners and house owners um, who may be uh, in, that, in that middle category of being worried, worried about inflation making their assets worthless.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're worried about the stock market becoming a bubble or the housing market becoming a bubble because these are people for whom the house is a significant percentage of their total assets or for whom they're stock portfolio or retirement accounts or a spe- or a large percentage of their assets they're not truly rich people truly rich people do are not reliant on their home maintaining value or reliant on uh, any any particular uh, set of stocks so perhaps
1: the so perhaps the um so perhaps if the if if the greatest uh risk for the welfare of the working class is deflation and the professional class is most worried about, is more worried at least about inflation than the capitalist class is not really affected by both. Though so to some extent can be affected by inflation in some context, especially if capital mobility is for some reason restricted.
0: I, I should say that, of course, if you're Jeff Bezos, you have to worry about the value of the Amazon stock price. But yeah, the yeah. Amazon yeah. stock price tends to, tends to work out regardless of what's going on in the overall stock market. Right. 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 So a bubble in the stock market is not likely to be something which is going to ruin Jeff Bezos. Even if it were to produce a temporary slide in the value of the Amazon stock price, that slide would still leave Jeff Bezos with enormous amounts of money, and he would be able to probably recover from that slide in a relatively short span of time. So if 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 inflation hurts
1: the middle and deflation hurts the poorest, then then the richest are free from. F- well, inflation, from would pro- these
0: things. inflation is a problem for rich people too, but the thing is we keep the inflation rate low. What is moving up and down is particular asset values. Right. So you have these right. specific bubbles, but not a generalized rise in the inflation rate. Okay. Rich people don't want a generalized rise in the inflation rate yeah. because that eats away at whatever they make off whatever speculative games they're playing right. in the financial system. Right. But if you have a relatively stable inflation rate, then the speculative games enable you to win a lot, very fast.
1: Okay. Oh, maybe it's a kind of income-wealth thing. So those dependent on income for their material well-being would be most worried about deflation. Those who are dependent on some degree of wealth for their material well-being will be worried, presumably, about both deflation, or, or ought to be worried both about deflation and inflation. Whereas those dependent more or less solely on um, wealth or, and uh, the income from capital will be uh, more or less uh, solely worried about generalized inflation, as you put it.
0: Yes, they'll only be worried really about generalized inflation, and they can often benefit from bubbles, right? And that the thing about people in that professional managerial band, they are not able to benefit from bubbles to anything like the same degree as truly rich people. Oh, right. And they're much more exposed to the consequences of bubbles, right? Okay. A homeowner, a small business owner, a pensioner is more exposed to a bubble. If you get a pop in the stock market bubble at the wrong time in a pensioner's life, that can result in destitution, right? So there's a worry in the professional managerial band about being really knocked off of your position by a speculative bubble, right? Whereas a bubble for an oligarch is is really just a good time. For a really rich person, a bubble is something to play with a little bit and get on and off whenever you want. Because the amount of assets, it's so enormous that you're not overexposed to any particular area of the global economy. You're not overly exposed to any particular country. You're not overly exposed to any place, right? And you can very quickly, in response to any sign of trouble, move somewhere else.
3: Mm. Move the money
0: wherever it's going to be effective, right? Whereas if you're in that professional managerial band, you know, your pension programs are probably mainly purchasing U.S. stocks, your house is stuck in a particular housing market in a particular place, right? You can't move around. And so these people who can't move around, they, they are very worried about their money because they're really not in control of it. They are you know, they especially as you become a retired person, you lose the ability to just go out and make the money back. Mm. And if you
2: lose it, you know, you're really in trouble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The health of the whole economy depends on um on preventing something like capital flight from um, from happening. Um I guess Maybe one question is, um, is there an extent to which, uh, as you were saying earlier, um, those who are very, very rich um, are to some degree constrained by the fact that, though we live in a world economy where people can, uh, with enough wealth can move their money very easily across borders, is there an extent to which... uh, capital flight is constrained due to the dependence on America and due to the dependence on um, America playing the role of a kind of um, anchor both of world trade and as a uh, crisis fighter um, when times get bad as a, and as a kind of way of providing stability to the global financial system. Through the trust in the Federal Reserve Board, uh, which kind of rests in America's role as the uh, consumer of last resort, uh, enabling it to play, uh, enabling the Federal Reserve to play this role of lender of last resort. Is there a degree to which, as a consequence of this, Um, there is some limitation on capitalists moving uh, capital out of America because then there is no anchor if you get if you get. a dire economic crisis in America. Then, where does the capital move to? Um, I mean, maybe maybe there's little awareness of this. Uh, is there enough awareness of this that th- that's something that wouldn't happen? And there was kind of discussion after the financial crisis of liquidity traps and of the risk of of capital flight, which which didn't materialize, but could it materialize?
0: Well, I think this is a big part of why it's so necessary when the United States does get into a crisis. For the ordinary person to be propped up a bit because this engine of consumption, which keeps up with inflation but doesn't, you know, it, this engine of consumption in the States has to keep running or all of these states which export to America would have trouble uh, continuing to fund those exports. But I think we shouldn't overstate this because. China's exports to America, for instance, do not account for an enormous percentage of its output, Uh, not nearly as high a percentage of its output as you might think in a vacuum. A lot of states are increasingly developing their own internal economies and have other states that they can trade with. Uh, The United States, I think, still plays an outsized role, in part because the United States maintains the System of capital mobility it maintains and it created and maintains the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund it has a large role in leading these organizations in uh, guiding the kinds of decisions that they make. I think that that's really what's most important that because of the United States, there is security for international trade and international finance yeah. there isn't any risk about getting stuck somewhere, unable to get out. Mm. And I think that's really the states that are not fully integrated into this system. The main reason they're not fully integrated in is that rich people have a worry that if they move into that country, they may not be able to get out again, Mm. right? That their mobility might be threatened. In that particular place, if there's a crisis, their assets might be seized or capital controls might be imposed to prevent them from moving back out.
1: Right, right, but all of this depends on there being some state that acts as a substitute for, um, for a system of global governance on the issue, some state providing the kind of coercive underwriting of this whole of this whole well, system.
0: It, it, it depends on, on a state providing a minimal amount of security. Yeah. For rich people to move their money around. Yeah. But not actually running the whole thing. No, no, just
1: I no, no, no yeah, acting as some kind of some kind of backstop, some kind of
0: yeah, protection. Uh, a kind of night watchman state. Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What you have at the global level is the libertarian dream of a kind of night watchman state which prevents rich people from having their assets seized or from being unable to move their property. Right, both military and which, economic security. Yeah. Right. Which secures that movement and makes it so that rich people feel they can move that money around relatively freely without trouble. Right. And states which undermine that become no go zones where rich people don't move their money. Right. But basically, the United States is set up and, and defends a set of rules that if states follow them will result in rich people coming there and, and dumping money into those economies from time to time. Mm. Right. And sometimes too much too fast. Sometimes you get asset bubbles in particular emerging markets where too many rich people congregate too quickly. And that leads to a, a party which ends mm. and has a hangover for those emerging markets. But the aim of this here, you know, sometimes a particular small state becomes the bubble, becomes the site of the bubble, which is not great for that state. So there are sometimes costs to being part of this thing. But for the most part, it enables states to get access to foreign investment that they would otherwise really struggle to get in a system that was more closed off where there's less trust. Right? What the United States does is it enables rich people to trust weaker governments. That's the main thing that it does. Yeah, yeah. If you are a weaker government that is trying to get the trust of rich people, the United States will help you get it. And help you keep it. If you're a poorer government that isn't trying to do that, that is looking to uh, potentially nationalize property uh, or impose capital controls, then the United States will treat you as a pariah and it won't give you the benefits of being involved in this system, right? Yeah, though, though the,
1: uh, the US's dollar swap lines were by and large with richer countries rather than… Um, Poorer countries, Um, and so there's an extent to which the U.S. is providing this umbrella to all states, not just poorer states, and to some degree, especially for richer states.
0: Well, a lot of this depends on. I think that there's a there's an open question, and it's one that I tend to lean on the side of. I think they have more autonomy than people realize. I think a lot of these richer states don't have to lean on the dollar as much as they maybe still imagine they do.
3: Okay. Mm.
0: I think a lot of them could could do things that are similar to what the United States does. I think the European Union, I think Japan, I don't think that these states need to acquire dollars as much as they sometimes think they need to acquire
1: by them. By the European Union, do you mean the member states of the European Union or the European Union as a whole having to join together as some kind of club? Um the European Union as a whole, right? As a whole, right?
0: I, I think that there is more potential for some of these states to use their currencies in a manner that's more like the way the dollar is used, especially if they can get their currencies included in reserve baskets. And a lot of states have reserve baskets that are not entirely dollar denominated.
1: What, what about um, China? Because um, of the three. Major currencies uh, vying for kind of uh, reserve status, the, the dollar which has that status, and the euro and the renminbi. Um, China has to some degree uh, uh, failed to internationalize the renminbi as it had hoped, um, partly because it's learned that it's, um, it, it's proven quite hard to. Um, to have the renminbi value, valuable enough for that to happen because China has to keep it at a sufficiently low value to boost exports. And so long as China is dependent on its exports and has an insufficiently large uh, domestic consumer economy, it's kind of hard t- for it to uh, give the renminbi more power than it does. And it's kind of therefore hard for China to develop the same kind of um, global or at least kind of regional economic power that America has, though arguably with through boosting exports, it has created a zone of economic influence that it could it, it could leverage in the future.
0: Well, I think the the problem in the Chinese case is that to be a reserve currency, you have to have credibility with rich people, right and the chinese state does is not willing to subordinate itself to rich people quite so straightforwardly yeah. the chinese state gets into fights with with its own rich people yeah. it creates these rich people and then it gets into fights with them yeah. it is not uh its elite views itself as distinct and different from its rich people right yeah and because of this there is antagonism between the chinese state and the wealthiest people in the world. A lot of the wealthiest people in the world do not trust the Chinese state. Mm. They don't think that, that that the Chinese state has their best interests at heart.
1: Though they still want to kind of trade right. with the Chinese state and have Chinese markets open for uh, for investment. Yes, yeah.
0: yes. But kind of they are not. They are not sure that the Chinese state is not going to seize their assets. Right. Or, uh, support states that might seize their assets. China has got a lot of positive relationships with the very kinds of states which the United States has treated as pariah states, those states which do things like impose capital controls or nationalize. China tends to have good relationships with those states. China has gotten into a lot of fights with its own rich people and with foreign rich people who have operated in China. And to a large degree, the United States is happy to encourage these spats between China and the world's rich people because it creates uncertainty about the Chinese market, and that leads rich people to locate operations in other states like Vietnam. Mm. So I think the main issue with China is that as long as the Chinese elite is rather static and unable to integrate the new rich people that China is producing into the political system... Uh, As long as that remains the case, there's going to be a lot of reluctance because while China has embraced a market economy, its political system is not very permeable to outside influence. And rich people want political systems that are easily permeable to outside influence.
1: Yes, but at the same time, rich people want a currency that is backed by a strong enough state that can provide that military and economic security to yes, their property. yes but which
0: will do it in a way which which they can rely on having uh, be consistent with their interests right uh, I, and the chinese state is not reliably consistent with the interests of rich people
1: y- yes no I, I i agree and i guess there is i think a, a two way relationship here that on, on the one hand that states
2: are um dependent on on capitalism for um
1: for ensuring that uh, they can maintain legitimacy um, but on the other hand, capitalism is um, very much dependent on the modern state for providing security and
2: it's um quite hard to um, disentangle the two. and I think that
1: we're seeing this increasingly today um, because of the role that even if America's role as a global economic superpower may seem to be dwindling as the world becomes more regionalized and somewhat less globalized, uh, though global financial integration is still Is 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 still going strong,
2: Um, and I guess that perhaps there's an extent to which the um,
1: ironically the dream of increasingly free market integration goes hand in hand with needing to maintain a level of political hierarchy. so that there is some state in a regional or global economy that can act as a crisis fighter when times get bad. And as well as the gold standard, uh, the cause that uh, economists like uh, I can agree and identify as one of the reasons why, um, why the depression was so bad um, and why... Uh, States struggle to adapt to that situation. Um, there's also the argument provided by uh, economist Charles Kindleberger that the fact that while Britain was able, but uh, sorry, Britain was willing but unable uh, to play the role of the hegemonic stabilizer of the of the spiraling. Uh, global economy while well, america was able but unwilling to play that role it was very hard to adapt to that crisis in the 30s whereas in after the financial crisis america was arguably both uh, able and willing to play that role uh, domestically and internationally uh, as an effective stabilizer on things and the crisis was adapted to much better than um the Great Depression was not. I guess you could argue that the European Central Bank played that role too. Um, but I, I think perhaps it's layers of layers of political hierarchy are required for this. Both at a regional level, you have quite a bit of um, political hierarchy in the European Union for this to work out, um, and at a global level, you have quite a lot of political hierarchy for America to play um, the role. Uh, of the stabiliser of the, of, of the system. And, and if we do get more regional trade blocks, then within each trade block there will presumably be some degree of political hierarchy, because capital ironically requires uh, a quite stringent political hierarchy in the modern state in order to provide security. Because as Hobbes argued, the best guarantee of security is some kind of uh, vesting of power in some kind of arbitrary uh, sovereign. Uh, and if, if you don't have that, then it's very hard to prop up the rules. The rules need enforcement. And who's going to enforce the rules? And who's going to um, help out uh, other states? Who's going to he- help out um, capital and labour when times get tough? Well, it has to be some kind of guarantor either the state or its central bank which is quite closely connected to it.
0: So uh, Well, yeah. I think I think that economically central banks are quite able to do this in states where those central banks are considered trustworthy. The military militarily though I think that there is a strong argument to be made that the United States still provides a lot of the guarantor. A lot of states which trade with Europe or which trade with China still have military cooperation with the United States. The Europeans, of course, themselves have military cooperation with the United States. Right. And this reliance on the United States for security uh, rather than dollars is, I think, more foundational.
1: Right, right. No, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And I guess at the same time, central bank independence isn't really independence, because when you depoliticize something, it isn't. A- it is still a political move. And the central bank is still, to some extent, the arm of the state. It's not totally independent from it because its independence is guaranteed by law. Um, The guarantee of this is still the
0: state. To have a state that is in the American military sphere is to have a situation where if you have U.S. military bases, you're not going to get in that state some kind of communist far-left government because that state that kind of regime can be easily deposed by the Americans. Mm. And that is a big part of what provides security for rich people who invest in those states. If you are a state with American military bases, with a permanent American military presence, that's very reassuring that you're going to keep governments that are compatible with this system in charge of that state. Hmm. And this is why I think that, to a very large degree, people don't realize just how many states around the world are, to a significant degree, not fully independent to the United States. Because they have got an American military presence. And if there were some kind of political crisis there, those, uh, the American military would potentially become involved in it. Right? Yes, yes. And that provides a certain reassurance against internal instability in that state.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, as well as the military security, I think there is an importance to economic security, and of course, we can see this at the individual level. That for people, you know, people don't just worry about whether um, whether they'll be threatened by um, by physical violence, and that is, of course, a worry for um, many people, uh, even in modern states, which. Theoretically, are meant to provide security from that kind of thing. Um, you know, people are also threatened, uh, uh, perhaps to an equal, if not a greater degree, in the absence of interstate war, by uh, economic insecurity. Um, I guess, though, at the same time as you were saying, uh, the 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 amount of wealth that the rich has uh, fluctuates more than the. Uh, um, wealth of everyone else. But at least at the same time, uh, though, though there is this kind of real wage stagnation, that doesn't go hand in hand with economic security. Instead, it goes hand in hand with economic insecurity. And people are living lives where job, their jobs are less secure, um, where the traditional nine to five routine is uh, is to some degree a thing of the past.
0: Well less yeah. it depends on what you're comparing to so right. they're less secure compared to the postwar era right economically people remain more secure than they were before the world wars right. in the 19th century right right so what what they what has been done here is that a minimal level of security is provided but this security doesn't say keep you in one job for your whole career it keeps you out of unemployment and allows those periods of unemployment to be supplemented right so when unemployment happens it's not as devastating. Mm. But it doesn't it doesn't keep you in a stable career your whole life like you might have been in the 50s or 60s where you might get a job for a company and then never leave. Right? So it's less stable than that, but it's more stable than the world of of 100 years ago where if you lost your job you could be really really destitute and really thoroughly immiserated. Right? Mm there there's a kind of managed managed threat so you you have to worry about losing your job because it's very unpleasant but it's not so unpleasant that you would resort to revolutionary activity mm. or regime change behavior right and and so this is how governments Also, not just revolution, but how they win elections. They have to make sure that when a crisis arrives, it it doesn't cause so much damage that they can't be electorally competitive. Right? So they minimize damage when a crisis hits, but they're not trying to provide you with the kind of ever rising living standards that you might have seen in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Right? So you have a level of stability. But this level of stability is is has been downward managed downward to be as little as as you can get away with.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess it's right? it's less instability than the. Yes, I guess it's less instability than the twenties. Um, it's, um, but it's more instability than the. Fifties and sixties um, is this? Is the seventies uh, um something that's also, I guess, presumably it's more like the uh, though in a different respect, more like the twenties in levels of instability compared to oh, our current n- era.
0: The seventies, no, no, the seventies. There's inflation, but jobs are still relatively stable in the seventies. Oh, right, it's in
1: the eighties yeah. that you get the un- uh, rising uh, massive unemployment. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know, I- even in the '80s, that massive unemployment is coming alongside a bunch of of uh, Keynesian systems, which are designed to alleviate the worst consequences of that unemployment. Yeah. So it doesn't hit people in the same way that unemployment would have hit them in the '20s and '30s. Well, well and how does that compare quantitative today? Quantitative easing and yeah. the fiscal stimulus. The purpose of the fiscal stimulus is to it- allow these periods of unemployment to be manageable. And to not produce the kinds of political consequences which they used to produce, right? It's all predicated on being able to do this QE without getting a bunch of inflation.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so so do you think the levels of economic instability
1: for people are somewhere somewhere between post-war stability and Into all chaos.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that a big part of what's going on here, you know, we talk about the security. What the security is security against is not just physical violence, it's about stuff like nationalization, stuff like capital controls, governments that might be interested in doing these things, right? So a NATO presence or American military presence is very much about guaranteeing the domestic policy of the government. To a significant degree, right, and we have a history of, of CIA coups and, and other kinds of covert action to depose regimes which are potentially going to def- defect away from this economic policy, right? Yeah, so in this way, the United States uses the military presence in large part to secure domestic economic conditions, right and that I think has at least as much of a role to play as dollar reserves. In s- securing for investors a confidence that these countries are safe places to invest. Oh, in.
1: sure, yeah, and as well as those two right. things, military security and uh, on the one end of the spectrum, and dollar reserves on the other end. There's also uh, interest rates uh, led by the Fed, uh, levels of stimulus, which the um, so Kindleberger's argument about the uh, about about the depression is not just um, to do with. Um, Interest rates, but also to do with countercyclical spending, and the role of the of the leading state in the system can be to to lead the way in that kind of countercyclical spending. Um,
0: yeah, so I think that I think I agree with you broadly that the United States plays a very powerful role in this i think that sometimes people get too caught on the dollar reserve issue oh sure and yeah. overstate its importance relative to the rest of this oh yeah i think yeah. that the rest of this is more important yeah
1: because
2: the dollar uh, and yeah, i think that yeah.
0: the the fundamental problem for china or for uh the european union Yeah, you know, we talk about how uh, they are having a hard time getting their currencies treated as reserve currencies that in and of itself is not the main problem The main problem that these states have is that for various reasons, they don't have enough confidence from rich people for rich people to treat holding that currency in reserve as an adequate guarantee of security. And the reason they don't have this is because of particular issues with how those states relate to the rich people as a class. So in the case of China, China often supports the very kind of regime which these rich people don't like and, and which threatens their money, the kind of regime which potentially nationalizes assets or imposes capital controls. And China itself is unwilling to credibly commit to not doing things like that yeah. uh, in cases where China believes that somebody is acting against national interest. China has managed to establish enough credibility that rich people are willing to come there But it hasn't established so much credibility that rich people are willing to treat the renminbi as equivalent to the dollar, right? In the case of the European Union, the European Union doesn't have the right political structure to appropriately guarantee its system. It's still got a structure which is too confederal and therefore too easily disrupted by disagreement among member states. And that limits the ability of the European Union to. try to persuade people to hold the euro as a reserve currency because the european union lacks coordination it can't come to rapid decisions on behalf of other states which might try to do business with it Mm. right the united states has more ability to respond quickly and more credibility that its policy really will be in alignment with the interests of 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 the rich people And the reason that you've got to have alignment with rich people is that these are the people who ultimately make the decision about whether to move investment, capital, and jobs in or out of a particular country. And they do it based on whether they think that country respects their property rights as they see it.
1: Yes, but if if there were, for some reason, a capital flight from the U.S., where where would the money go, do you think?
0: Well, I think if that were happening, it would be because the United States was managing the dollar in such a way that it rapidly inflates. Yeah. And if the United States yeah. is managing the dollar in such a way that it rapidly inflates, individual rich people would have an incentive to hold a different currency.
1: But what, what would be the currency, do you think? Would it kind of be a bit uh, chaotic in
0: what the currency would be? Yes, I think it would be quite chaotic in what the currency would be. I also think that you'd have a problem in that, Rich people in general have an interest in the United States continuing to play this role of, of the securer yeah, it, of the system. exactly, exactly. And that, that's, that's the problem. Individual rich people would, in the case of, of rapid inflation, have an individual interest in dumping the dollar.
1: Yes, yes. Capitalists don't necessarily what,
0: do what's good for the capitalist class. Right. And so in a situation like that, the, the dumping of the dollar would destroy the American economy and the ability of the United States to continue to secure the system. Which would, I think, lead to the collapse of the system. I don't think anyone is currently in position to step no. in and take America's place. I agree
1: with that, and uh, yeah, that that seems like. I guess on on the one hand, I, I was hoping to use that for, as an argument for why that wouldn't happen. But do you think it, even if it leads to the collapse of sy- the system, could that still happen? Could capital flight? Yes, or because the still interests
0: happen? of individual capitalists can be pitted against their interest as a class. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah th- th- this is. Yeah, this is deeply ironic. Yeah.
0: But I don't think that's likely to happen no. because so far, so far, there's been an ability to manage the use of quantitative easing in such a way that it doesn't produce inflation.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And bear in mind, there's been a willingness to tolerate quite a bit of inflation in the United States before capital flight really sets in because the American market is so large.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? When a market is very large, you're more willing to tolerate negative consequences, uh, negative stuff in that market because the size of the consumption that that market provides is so great. Okay. So another, another issue, and you see this in the 70s where there's quite a bit of inflation, but not generalized capital flight. Even though there's quite a bit of inflation because there is still so much consumer power in the United States, which people don't really have a choice but to be exposed to it, Mm. right? Now, if there is really, really rapid inflation to an enormously high level, you would eventually reach a point at which it doesn't make sense to maintain that exposure, right? But it would have to be quite enormous. As the 70s illustrate, even without capital controls, quite a bit of inflation in an economy the size of the United States will be tolerated.
3: Mm. Right? Yeah.
0: And, you know, when people talk about this kind of situation, they're imagining ridiculous hyperinflation. And historically, when we have high inflation in the United States, you know, even quite high inflation, we're talking about 10%, at which point there's usually... uh, immense mobilization on the part of the rich to do something about the policies which have led to that level of inflation. That's usually their first move. It's to express voice rather than exit in uh, uh, Hirschman's terminology from exit loyalty and voice, mm, mm. right? So the first move is to engage politically to try to get the United States to move to a policy which defends its currency. Yeah, an exit is last resort. Exit is last resort. So yes, if you get to a point where the inflation is so ridiculously high, that there's no choice but exit, then yes, the United States would be in a position of of falling apart. But that isn't likely to happen. Long before the inflation rate would get that high, you'd have a mobilization of rich people in the way that they mobilized in the 70s to take the state and reorganize its economic policy. Mm. And for that reason, there's enormous confidence in the country. And that's why stuff like quantitative easing can be done without anybody Without anybody who's rich really taking seriously the idea that this QE is going to destroy the global economy.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: For the most part, the people who take that idea seriously are not the people who are really wired into this system and how it works.
1: Right. But it is still sufficient to uh, perhaps uh, legitimate another wave of um, austerity in response to the. Constructed fear of inflation in the wor- in the coming years, um, even when inflation is still uh, not that big an issue, and w- when the world is still is still living at the very least in the aftermath of the deflationary uh, hazard of the of twenty twenty, uh, and um, yeah, states seem to yeah, be mobilizing. The role quickly. of
0: austerity is to is to signal to people that you care about inflation. And you're not going to let it go crazy. And that the America feels the need to remind people of that from time to time.
1: Right. And there's a connection, of course. In, in the interwar years, uh, the way of maintaining the trust of the rich was both through the gold standard and through uh, maintaining a tight uh, fiscal um, policy. Those things are
0: connected. You need yeah. a tight fiscal policy to maintain your relationship to gold.
1: Right, but even without gold, a tight fiscal policy is essential for states or states. Because what you're really essential. doing, yeah.
0: by defending the gold pegging, you're saying we're not going to let the currency inflate. And yeah, austerity is another way of saying we're not going to let the currency inflate. And you do austerity when you are looking at your population, going, "We think we can get away with this. We think we can." Shore up our relationship with wealthy people, and we won't get enough blowback from ordinary people to be concerned about it, right? Mm. It's a calculation that the Conservative government made in Britain when it was a coalition government and, and found it to work very much in its own favor.
3: Yeah. Right?
0: And when you go, we're not going to be politically harmed by doing it, and it will improve our relationship. With rich people and encourage them to invest in the country, then we'll do it.
1: Right, right. And I guess the difficulty is that one of the conditions of a government being politically harmed by austerity is there being some kind of political alternative to uh, austerity. Um, and without that kind of rigorous alternative, it's hard for for there to be any real political cost for doing austerity. So long as there's no real alter- alternative to relatively tight fiscal policy, it's hard for that to be um, something that would delegitimate the government. And so governments continue to do austerity on one level or another because it's not, well, because there still really on some level is no alternative.
0: Uh, that's the trick in terms of domestic policy. You want to make sure that you don't create so much instability for your ordinary people that they cause real trouble but you want to push it up to the edge because it's expensive to insulate the general population from instability that's costly to rich people and to the state which funds itself with tax revenue from rich people or from quantitative easing which potentially inflates assets right mm. so for that reason The state has to be uh, intelligent about when it does that, and it generally is reasonably intelligent about it, uh, though sometimes it makes mistakes. and, And when it does, it pays a cost for that, usually at the ballot box. It doesn't usually get to the level where the government is going to be overthrown, but it often gets to the level where a particular government loses an election because they botched it, right? Yeah. An individual government batching it is no problem from the point of view of the overall system.
1: Yeah, and I guess, is there an extent to which the world we, we live in, um, which is somewhere between interwar chaos and post-war stability, is a world in which we avoid on the one hand uh, the product of interwar instability, which was 1930s nationalism, protectionism, and then another devastating world war. And we avoid, on the other hand, the product of the post-war stability. Well, I guess the product of post-war stability is the system that we live in. Um, And I guess the question is, where does this lead next? Because we're unlikely to get the the retreat to the nation-state that followed interwar instability on the one hand, and also the um, the globalization of the economy that followed post-war stability, and, and perhaps the perhaps the mean between those extremes is is rather than national or global economies, a kind of a trend towards regional economies and regional blocks. Um,
0: I think the problem with the regional blocks is that they don't currently have the political cohesiveness necessary to function without uh, occasionally drawing on the dollar. Right. As we've seen in the case of the EU, the problem is that the EU is not organized in such a way that it can make economic policy in a sufficiently credible fashion to entirely liberate itself from doing dealings with the dollar, which is, I think, really since the fall of Bretton Woods, the ambition of Europe has been to get away from the dollar and not have to deal with it. And the trouble is, for that to happen, you have to have a level of political cohesion that these regional structures tend to not have. Right, and right. And tend to be very resistant to, to having. Because of the nation state. I do want to make, yeah, because of the, this being stuck in the nation state paradigm. I do want to make uh, one one other point about uh, oil and petrodollars, petrostates. I think that when it comes to oil, this is where you, you definitely see the influence of the dollar. Yeah. Because if you have oil, because oil is traded in dollars, if you have oil and you sell it, you can get dollars even if the United States doesn't want to give you dollars. Mm. Right? So, states that are able to sell oil are able to get dollars even though the United States might prefer for them to not have dollars. And the only way the United States can prevent them from getting dollars is to sanction them in such a way that they can't sell their oil. Right? So, a state that has got oil has more ability to carve out its own path and follow its own narrative because a state with a lot of oil is able to get dollars and back its currency without having to comply with American economic paradigms more generally. Mm. Right, And so there you can see how the ability to to get those dollars makes a difference for certain states, states like Saudi Arabia, states like uh, until... Recently, Venezuela, uh, states like Russia, for that matter, the ability to get those to to sell oil really strengthens the policy autonomy of those states, but it leaves them vulnerable to changes in the value of the oil price, right? So because their dollar is stuck to oil, right? Their currency is stuck to the dollar and the dollar is stuck to oil for them. Mm. When there's a change in the value of oil, then this Shreds their ability to accumulate dollars potentially, and this can undermine the currency. So we saw this happen in Venezuela. when there was a glut in oil and a fall in oil prices, then Venezuela was unable to continue to bring in enough new dollars to support its currency. Right? Hmm. And so there are states that have used oil as a workaround for having to deal with the Americans, but they're vulnerable. oil gluts and the united states was able through fracking to generate and and significantly contribute to an oil glut over the last decade which the united states to a large degree purposefully created the united states was out to create an oil glut to undermine some of these petrol states which ordinarily have a level of autonomy from the united states to reduce the autonomy of those states And I think that fracking significantly diminished their autonomy to a considerable degree, and many of them are still struggling to deal with a world where, between fracking and, of course, the further drop in oil prices that occurred after coronavirus, um, where they are less able to use oil to achieve policy autonomy. Mm. So that's the area where the dollar really is making a big difference for some of these developing states with otherwise flimsy currencies that are able to keep them humming when the oil money is flowing in, but only when it's flowing in.
3: Yeah. Right.
0: And of course, there are states that have had different experiences from Venezuela, but often by, instead of, uh, you know, in the Venezuelan case, this money was spent more or less as it came in. So there was no big reserve to help Venezuela get through a lean period where oil prices were down. A state like Saudi Arabia builds up a very large reserve to avoid that problem. A state like Norway operates a sovereign wealth fund so that the oil wealth is turned into lots of other different kinds of wealth to diversify its exposure so that it isn't as easily thrown off by an oil shock. There are a few different strategies open to these states. But in all of these cases, you do see the influence of the dollar, on the policy of the developing states. I think that's where it has the most impact. The dollar is the reserve currency gives the United States power over developing states, rather than really making a huge difference for the American domestic economy.
1: Mm.
2: And America itself has um, an interest in, well,
1: uh, as you noted, through fracking, trying to... Wean off dependence,
2: its own dependence on um, oil imports, um, and so oil has significance. Yeah, not just for um, monetary
1: policy and currency, but for the for the whole for the whole geopolitical economy um, of states.
0: Yeah, I think oil makes a bigger difference than the reserve currency thing. Uh, by a significant margin. Anyway, I guess it's the, partly uh,
1: because oil is a, is, a, is a commodity and there are kind of two theories of um, money and currency. The, the commodity theory of money kind of rooted in the origins of money and, and currencies as, uh, as, um, as mediums of uh, economies just leaving their kind of barter economy stage where the money or currency was some kind of uh, was some kind of, um, commodity. But even then, um, when we have, you know, bronze, silver, gold, um, as the anchor of currencies, uh, you can't, um, um, make fuel or energy or food out of, uh, out, out of these things. Uh, there's, that. There, there commodities the kind of artificial commodities that we place value on um uh, which leans more heavily into the credit theory of of money which is that money is a is some kind of stand-in for commodities um is a medium of exchange uh a unit of account and a store of value but only really a store of exchange value rather than use value and so uh, f- for that for that reason um I guess that um, because the credit theory of money has, I think, some priority here, because money isn't really a commodity. And when it is commoditized, it's not commoditized to keep people alive. It's commoditized to um, generate more money that could then be used to uh, perhaps generate use values. Um, But money itself uh, isn't a commodity, doesn't have use value. Uh, It has only exchange value, and so, and so, when it comes to something like oil, which does have use value, um, because it can be burnt to uh, release energy uh, for keeping people warm and for electricity and all sorts of other things, Um, and so, money, currency in itself is uh, as Marx put it, is social power. Parading as a thing, um, but it's not actually a thing in itself with value in itself. It's only value for something else, uh, value in exchange, a stand-in for value. And so, uh, and, and so the value of, of money is always dependent. It's always contingent on the real economy which it is used to mediate, because it's a medium of exchange. It's not the thing which we are really looking for when we're exchanging things. Though at the same time, it's ironic how though money is dependent on the real economy, the real economy is very much dependent on, on, on the currency and, and the money. And if, if, the, if the currency is uh, overvalued, uh, then you get um, deflation. If it's undervalued, uh, then you get inflation. And Yeah, yeah. So uh, to two way because we're about
0: at two hours, yeah. so we've probably got to wrap. But to sum up, currency is a tool, and it's a tool that you can use to get the economy to do different things and to create different kinds of experiences for people. And different people who have different relationships to the economy, to the distribution of wealth and power in the society, want different things out of the currency. And the difficulty throughout history has been trying to get a currency which can manage the different needs that different people at different positions within the economy have, right? Where somebody who is poorer needs a currency they can go out and buy bread with, and someone who's richer needs wants to accumulate currency and have that accumulated currency hold value or become more valuable over time, right? right? And the thing is, there's a fundamental contradiction between those two things because if the currency is becoming more valuable, then that means that people start sitting on it, and that means that not enough people don't buy enough bread, don't produce enough bread, and you get an unemployment crisis, right? Right. right? Conversely, if you run down the value of the currency trying to make sure everybody always has enough to buy bread, then this is going to frustrate people who are trying to accumulate it, sit on it, and treat it as a as something to potentially speculate off of or save. Yeah. yeah. Right? So that fundamental conflict has to be managed in some way. And throughout history, what generally works is having a currency which somehow has two different lives, two different functions or purposes accommodating both of those things in two different ways
3: right right?
0: and the trouble is most of the time we end up with a monetary paradigm which doesn't allow both of those things to be administered consistently and leads to one or the other being overly prioritized yeah and what tends to be stable politically is a situation which treats these two classes of people in a fundamentally different way where they have a fundamentally different relationship to currency. Right. Right. That tends to be politically stable, but it also tends to ossify the barrier between those classes and to make it much harder for people in the lower class to move into the higher.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess, if I may say just one thing, though money, as you say, is a tool, though it's a means to an end, I think there is a risk sometimes that people treat money, of course, fictitiously, as an end in itself, and I think this, to some degree, makes sense of why Plato warned against the love of money, um, as opposed to the loves of uh, the more honourable loves of, of of wisdom and and honour. Um, and Aristotle responded to Plato by saying, "Well, it's not really the love of money that's at work here, but the love of pleasure and the way that money is used to generate use value to generate pleasure from consuming various things." But I think there's a degree to which uh, I think. Both theorists are right on this because on the one hand, money is only valuable, uh, as you say, as a means to an end, but uh, there is a risk at the same time that the more you pursue something as a means to an end, you start treating it as an end, which is kind of the Frankfurt School critique of modernity, that it's a focus on the means, on the tools, where we treat the means as the ends. Uh, And I think there is... A confusion that does go on and should be guarded against. Um, But it is a confusion with, I think, dire consequences. When we treat money as an end in itself rather than, as I think you rightly put it, as as a tool, as a means to an end, Uh, we start um, chasing after something that
0: can never really give us happiness. I think that's a lovely way to end it, Edmund. All right. So thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.